It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today I have a really, really interesting but super important topic for you to listen to. So just, you know, just tune in and hang in there and listen to all of it. Um, You know, our society says many of the school systems, many of the systems say that we have a zero tolerance for bullying. But truly, the adult society is rife with it, and it is an epidemic among children. You know, we hear about this a lot, but um, we really don't understand just how epidemic it is because the injuries that all forms of bullying and abuse do do what they do to the brains are invisible. We ignore them. We fail to heal them, and they become cyclical and systemic. Um, Today's guest, Jennifer Fraser, has written the book, The Bullied Brain, and in this book, She talks about the evidence doctors, psychiatrists, neuropsychologists, neuroscientists have gathered that shows the harm done by bullying and abuse to your brain and how you can be empowered to protect yourself and all others and how you can heal it even better. So just sit back and you are about to learn a lot. Good morning, Jennifer. Welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome, and thank you for writing this book, The Bullied Brain. It is a really important book now for um, so many of us to hear. You know, bullying, as you talk about in your book, takes many, many different forms, and it goes on all the time. Now, for those who are listening who have suffered narcissistic abuse, you absolutely know what bullying is at its very worst. But this happens in the schools, it happens in government, it happens in organizations, it happens everywhere. So Jennifer, um, tell us what motivated you to write this book. (laughs) I was, 10 years ago, I was uh, an award-winning teacher at a private school in Canada, and it was brought to my attention that there was really just awful emotional and physical bullying taking place. And, um, you know, the language was just horrendous. It was homophobic slurs and swearing and yelling in the face and just this constant put-downs and favoritism and fear and humiliation, like all of the standard basic markers of bullying. Except the big problem was it wasn't children bullying other children. It was teachers. So these were my colleagues. And so what happened was, I, I mean, I'm one of those people that just, I do everything by the book. You know, my dad's a retired lawyer and my grandfather was a judge. And I just, I'm just like rule of law. I think that everyone behaves this way. Very, very naive. So I, I entered into the system 
you know, with my heart on my sleeve and in good faith, only to find out that the entire system, all the way up to the government agencies that are empowered and funded to protect children, they were all sort of systemically enabling and covering up the bullying of these adults. They were bending over backwards, doing everything in their power to make sure that adults, the bullies, were protected and not the victims. And this just shook my whole worldview, and that's when I began the research. I'm, my background is academic. I'm a, trained, uh, I'm a trained comparative literature specialist, and what they taught us to do was take different discourses. So as you said, you know, psychology and medicine and teaching and education and neuroscience and put them into an arena together to see what happens. What happens when we step out of our silos and speak with one another and engage? And what I learned was so startling about the brain that I was compelled to write about it. Um, and you have covered everything in this book. It is so comprehensive. You talk about every study. It's, it's really, really good. It's a great book. Um, so you, you say in the very beginning that you've learned that regardless of the tendency to dismiss and deny abuse, neuroscientists have found that when stress becomes repeated or chronic, the immune response doesn't turn off properly. Um, and this happens with narcissistic abuse as well. It happens with all forms of abuse. But what exactly is going on in the brain, um, just in layman's terms, that causes it to not turn off? And that's a really, it's such a right to the heart of the matter question. Um, I, I want to talk about it from two different points of view, if, if that's okay. I want to start by talking about the narcissist brain. So we have a tendency to think about bullying as if the victim is the one who's having the damage done, and they are, and it's, it's not healthy and it's not good. So if, you, if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, for example, you're under a constant state of stress. It's toxic stress. It's not the healthy kind. And what's happening is um, your sympathetic nervous system, which is how your brain keeps you safe and alive, and that's the priority for the brain. It's your survival system. So your sympathetic nervous system gets on high alert. It's like, uh-oh, am I going to be humiliated again? Is there going to be gaslighting? And I'm, am I going to have a terrible encounter once again when I actually care about this person and I'm connected to this person or I might even have children with this person. So your system's on high alert and that means that you're constantly pumping um, adrenaline and most importantly cortisol into your, into your brain and your body. The impact on your brain of, the, of this stress hormone cortisol is it can damage in particular the hippocampus. The hippocampus is the center for memory and learning and good decision-making. And, and, you know, we're not really supposed to talk about areas of the brain doing one specific task because they don't. They're very, it's much, much more complex. But for us, like you say, layman's terms, us to understand why, did, why is this important to us? Well, it's because if you're living with this kind of constant stress, it's actually dismantling really important brain architecture that helps you be healthy that helps you be happy, that helps you feel good about yourself and, you know, prioritize your own needs and all these kinds of things. Now, what's so interesting to me is we don't just need to be really distressed about the victim's brain. We have to worry about the narcissist's brain because the reason they behave the way they do 
and it can be seen on brain scans. It's been studied. They have very, very damaged brains, or they would not behave the way they do. So instead of us all treating this as a big medical problem, which is what it is, we treat it as a moral problem. So the narcissist becomes someone who we see as, you know, when we start to trot out very negative, you know, old-fashioned terms, really, in a sense. We feel that they're evil. We feel that they're cruel. We think that they're monsters. And, you know, the way they hurt people, of course it feels that way. But I just, what I want to explore with the book and what happens with it is, what about if we started to see the narcissist as someone who was truly ill? We could see their brain on an EEG showing that it's deactivating in all kinds of important centers like the empathy centers of the brain. And then we set about getting them healed. Because if we could heal the narcissist and not let them repeat these destructive behaviors that wire them into their brains, we could save many victims. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, um, yes, the narcissist is truly damaged. Um, it is narciss narcissistic personality disorder is a maladaptive coping mechanism to the nth degree. They, they take something that yes. basically shuts off their emotional growth, um, their ability to empathize, to feel. They just basically close it down. Um, and the problem is, you know, there's... Uh, there are psychologists and psychiatrists that will say, oh, yeah, you can heal them, but not through the method that you're talking about. They're just saying, you know, they can be healed through psychotherapy. Well, that's not true. They cannot be healed through psychotherapy because they, the nature of the disorder is that they cannot see that what they do is wrong. They are completely blinded to it, so they never get help. But this is definitely an area to explore, um, you know, not that they would ever submit themselves to it, but if you appeal to their narcissism, you might be able to get them to do it. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, this is, uh, you know, but this is, this is very far-reaching. And, you know, for me, it's a really personal thing as well because my son was bullied terribly in middle school, terribly to the point where I had to take him out of that school and put him into a private school because he was going to hurt somebody. You know, he wasn't coming home and burying his head. He was coming home and saying, I'm going to hit him if he says it again. And then, mm -hmm. and he wasn't a violent kid. And I knew that that was going to change his life in a negative way because he would be seen as the problem. So I pulled him out. And I put him into private school, and the issue stopped. But I have to tell you that um, he, I really think, and I can't say this for sure, but I really think that he used that experience to, change, to, to decide what he wanted to do in life because he decided he was going to be successful and he was going to show these people. I don't think he's ever said it that way. But I really think that there was such a change in him that that's what happened. But what generally happens to children, um, and I'm asking this as a question, what generally happens to children who experience bullying by teachers and coaches and, um, and other peers? Well, I think that it's a systemic problem. So one of the things 
that children are taught from a very, very early age. So when I think about teaching now and I think about what children do, I think about the brain. So imagine a brain at a very early age, around four years old, five years old, that's the beginning of being told that they must respect their teachers and they must respect adults and they must respect their coach. So this then gets wired into the brain hundreds and hundreds of times from a very early age and it wires the brain to um, anticipate that all adults are deserving of respect and all adults have their best interests at heart and that they're going to guide and lead and mentor them. This is not true. I mean, we live in a society that is absolutely rife with adult abuse of children. You just need to flip over, open the newspaper or go online to read the latest absolutely appalling scandal. So what I don't understand is why we aren't teaching children that they need to have um, a sensitivity to, an awareness of, and most importantly, a vocabulary for abusive behaviors. Our kids need to be taught at the age of four and five when they start school how to articulate that abuse is occurring with the proper language. Because what inevitably happens, and this is what happened with my son, a teenager will come home and say to you, and you might have experienced this with your son in middle school, you know, he'll come home and say, if that kid says that again, I'm going to hit him. He doesn't come home and say, you know, um, there is a boy at school who's clearly suffering from, you know, early signs in a sense of narcissism. He's unable to have an identity without humiliating other people, namely me. I'm, I'm his present target. And he clearly is suffering so seriously from, you know, um, a mental disorder that he can't find happiness or self-confidence or joy in what he's doing without hurting someone. And uh, he's dependent for his identity construction on me. And I really think that we should be alerting, you know, uh, teachers and the, high, and the school counselor and getting him the support that he needs. It's really quite tragic. We don't do that. We have, you know, your child comes home and says, you know, as my son said to me about the teachers, he said, I hate those guys. Mm. Well, I mean, as I'm embarrassed to say as a mother and, and my husband too, we, we didn't, we didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you do when your kid says they hate the teacher? You just are kind of like blindsided by it. It's like, uh, anyway, we, d we did not ask the right questions. We did not get the right vocabulary. It wasn't until other kids were reporting, you know, the, the homophobic slurs and the, the uh, yelling in the face and the grabbing and detaining and these kinds of mm -hmm. behaviors, we didn't put the picture together of what was happening. But in answer, you asked me the question of what is happening to the brain of the victim, What's happening is they are shutting down. I mean, when, and it's a very dangerous thing. If, someone's, if someone, especially if it's an adult to child, if they are abusing you, whether it's physical, emotional, or sexual, or neglect even, emotional neglect even, they are causing you to start to dissociate. Because it's so unbearable what's happening to you, and you would know this intimately as someone who was with a narcissistic um, person, you start yes. to identify with the aggressor because mm -hmm. the aggressor is the safety place. And especially you can imagine with a child. So they start to internalize the put-downs, the humiliation. They start to get really quiet and small and hope that they're not targeted again. This is, this mm -hmm. is what bystanders do. Everyone gets full of fear. And when you're full of fear, your brain and your body are getting pumped full of adrenaline and cortisol. 
because your body is trying to protect you, give you the energy to fight or to flight or to flee or to freeze. Sorry, not flee. And um, it stays in the body because you're perpetually exposed to this abusive individual and it hurts you and you can't see it. It's invisible. So we ignore it in society and we, we dismiss and deny. That was such a brilliant explanation. Thank you. Thank you. You really did lay it out there. That was really, really good. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's so true. It's so true. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was, you know, I'm kind of a, a rebel, and always have been. And when my kids came home and told me that their teachers were mean or bullying or unfair, I marched my butt right out of there, <laughs> and I confronted them. And that was the last time they ever did it to my kid. Um, but I found myself doing this quite often throughout the years. I have two children, yeah. two adult children. You know, I was constantly advocating for them, constantly, 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 the way they were being treated. Um, you know, but, but not every parent has the same kind of gumption or rebellion or whatever it is. You know, I told my kids, if your teachers don't respect you, they don't deserve respect. Uh, but that, mm-hmm. I agree with you, is not the norm. We're supposed, children are supposed to respect adults, and I agree with you, and authority figures. So, yeah. you know, you, yeah, was there anything you wanted to say to that? Yeah, I'm, th- I'm just thinking that um, one of the things that we have to understand that's happening to a child's brain is we're giving them a lot of cognitive dissonance. So... Mm-hmm. It's, it's like confusing the brain. It's making children um, doubt their own perceptions, doubt the reality that they're constructing with their brain, all these kinds of things, doubting their own emotional concepts that they're constructing. And the reason is we tell them bullying is bad. Don't do it. We have zero tolerance for it. If you see it happening, go and report to a trusted adult. Go to a teacher and tell them. But then all they need to do is turn on the television to watch our most esteemed leaders in our world using bullying behaviors. They're in a classroom with a teacher who's using bullying behaviors. Nobody's stopping it. No one's calling it out. No one's saying that it's bad. So what we're really teaching children is that you can't bully and abuse until you're an adult and you have the power. Then you can use those same techniques that you've seen adults use throughout your life. It's learned behavior. You're right. It is learned behavior. That really does. uh, That's a great explanation. I wanted to, um, you talk, you have these four, well, let me see, two questions, I think it is. Okay. About, um, there was an experience done by Milgram. Um, and I'll let you talk about the experience, but you ask us to test our own assumptions about obedience to authority by answering two questions. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions is from zero to 40, how many individuals do you think? Okay. So, okay. You have to talk, first talk about the, talk about the experiment because the questions don't work. Okay. Yeah. Don't talk about the experiment. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just, it's just so fascinating. So, Stanley Milgram was a Yale professor, and after World War II, he asked himself the very pressing question, how is it possible that a million normal people in Germany um, did what they did during the Holocaust? How could that have possibly happened? 
And during the Nuremberg trials, you, you were constantly hearing people say, well, I was just following orders. I was ordered to behave this way, and I did. So Milgram said to himself, hmm, like what does that exactly mean? Why are people just obeying orders? What's happened to people's ability to think critically or act ethically? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study this. So he did an experiment where he brought in people off the street from New Haven, just regular people, and he said to them, look, um, we need you to help us participate in an experiment. And he played the role of the student. So he sat um, past a glass, glass wall, and he sat in a chair, and he was the student. And he was hooked up to electrodes. And then he had um, <clears throat> another – so it was, it's, you're looking at someone who you think is just a random person, but they're not. They're Stanley Milgram. And then he had um, an actor play the role of the authority figure. So you have the actor playing the authority figure, and he's in a white lab coat, and he's telling the random person off the street in New Haven, can you please punish the student if they make a mistake? And so the person was looking at this sort of electrical apparatus, and it showed that they could just give a light electrical jolt all the way up to, um, and it showed very clearly, this is this is going to cause pain, this is you know going to hurt the person, and this is life-threatening. And so the authority figure with repeat commands that were more and more oppressive, like they began sort of a little bit mildly, then they became a little, you have to do this, you know, very oppressive. And so what, they, what was just shocking about this experiment, it's called the perils of obedience, and it's been repeated and replicated many times, and it always comes back with the same results. What was shocking, in a sense, it's not really when you know about the brain, but what was shocking at the time the people, even, even though they were risking someone's life and they were watching Stanley Milgram scream and writhe and, and show signs of being like, physically damaged by the high jolts of electricity these people were giving, simply because they thought the student was making a mistake and the authority figure was telling them to do it. So that is the experiment and really what it does, and it's just what you and I were talking about with school, we tell children in school that they must obey. We train them from the age of four or five on not to be critical thinkers, not to self-advocate, not to have the correct language when abuse is occurring. We teach them to obey the adults in their world, and we teach them to become compliant adults who do what authorities tell them to do to the most terrifying degree. And that has to change. I love that study, and I, you know, I think I've actually watched some kind of documentary on it. I think I've actually seen it in action, and it, it's unbelievable yeah. how, and, and, you know, and I, I, th- I always think of the same thing, like what would motivate all those Germans to follow the orders of one man and torture and murder, wipe out an entire race, or try to. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing, um, but it can happen again. It can. Unless well, we have... we're watching, we're watching the world do this again with Putin. It's horrifying. Yes, I know. I know it's horrible. So, and people don't understand the correlation, but there, there truly is a correlation. Um, there, in the book, you talk about how there's this. <clears throat> uh, people think that. grit and harshness and, you know, trying to build up somebody like an athlete or 
you know, give them kind of a hard time to make them tougher. <clears throat> How that is n- working really, not in that way, but against them and causing them problems because that is truly bullying behavior. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really an important issue because what I found when I started to look at this phenomenon personally and then in the system and then in the research, I discovered that we've become a society that has normalized abuse and we've normalized bullying behaviors. And there's, we're, we're so steeped in them that we've stopped being able to identify what they are and what they do. And so there's this really big gap between how we tend to conduct ourselves and what we believe and then what's happening in the research. So the research is very clear that the way the brain learns is by making mistakes. And so instead of, instead of having a school system or a sport program where when children or athletes or teenagers or students um, make mistakes, we should be celebrating them because that's a brain that's learning. And, and if you humiliate a child, you give them a, a red X or you put them down or you tell them they're not trying or any of these things that we do, we tell them they're lazy or they're not giving their best effort or all these things, these labels we put on them. Really what we're doing is we're communicating to the brain that making mistakes is not okay. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to embarrassment and shame and things that make you feel badly about yourself and criticism. The brain takes all of that kind of um, bullying, basically, and it stops taking risks. It doesn't want to be too creative anymore. It doesn't want to put itself out there or try something new or have a growth mindset or work harder. It actually starts to shut down because it doesn't want the humiliation, the criticism, and the shaming, and uh, the, oh, you've disappointed your parents or your teacher or your coach or your teammates or whatever. So if we want brains to have growth mindset and believe that the harder they work, the more, the more mistakes they're going to make and the more they're going to learn and achieve. You cannot perfect a skill without making a hundred mistakes. You know, all the all the big champions like Michael Jordan, the basketball player, he'll, he'll tell you right away, I made that one three-pointer because I missed 2,000 other ones, right? <laughs> and we always have to remember that. That's right. <clears throat> I would think that, um, you know, having a coach like that um, creates r- machines that can do it. They're good athletes. You know, they push them and push them and push them. They're good athletes, but they're repressed and damaged emotionally. And we wonder why years later <clears throat> they get into trouble, they do things, strange things, they eat up their girlfriend or, you know, whatever, get in trouble with the law. Um, it's because they're not healthy. They, they've been trained to be one way, and that's to perform. But that's more like a mechanical thing. So I can see where that happens. Well, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head of a really important thing that I've thought a lot about because my son was exposed to a lot of homophobic slurs, misogynistic slurs, um, so, so sort of ugly, I don't want to repeat on your show. Um, you'll just have to use your imagination, you know, effing X, Y, and Z, very uh, mm. humiliating to teenage boys. 
So I thought a lot about that, the homophobic slurs, misogyny, the way in which it's used in sports, that kind of toxic masculinity. And number one, there's no research that shows that homophobic slurs or misogynistic, like hatred of women slurs, um, put-downs that make you feel that you're a feminine being when you're a boy, none of that is correlated with athletic performance. So it's like, <laughs> why do they do it? You've got, to, you've got to wonder. And it goes back to the narcissism. Somebody who's, who's yelling a bunch of homophobic language has a lot of issues with their own masculinity. You know, they're, they're needing to shore up their identity and their sense of power by putting down and humiliating young people that they have control over. And so it's, it's really a red flag of someone who's got a lot of problems, you know, mental health problems, even though we normalize it in society and we go, oh, it's going to make the players tougher. Well, there's no research that backs that up, absolutely none. Now, there is a lot of athletes who go out into the world, seems to be more than um, others, um, who, as you say, they do very destructive things, in particular targeting the women in their lives. And you can't help but wonder if there's a correlation between being a young man where the powerful men in your world who you've been told all your life to honor and respect, you identify with the aggressor because you want to be one of those powerful men. You identify with the aggressor, but you now need a victim. You've got to take all of this hatred towards women and disgust at their bodies and put it somewhere. So what do you do? You take it out on the woman in your life. And it becomes this kind of sexualized violence. So, you know, our society is so limited in how we understand these things. We look at, you know, like the, one of the most tragic examples of this is Jordan McNair. And Jordan McNair was a football player at Maryland University. I don't know if you would know about this. It just wasn't, it was a few years ago. He was 19 years old and he was exposed to toxic masculinity by the trainers and the coaches on his team and all the other players have come forward and it's been greatly discussed and lots of homophobic slurs and also this kind of you're lazy, you're weak, try harder, push harder, be stronger, full of a lot of like humiliating, shameful language. So he was, it was, you know, 104 degrees in their training and his body started to self-destruct. You know, he couldn't walk and he was stumbling and he couldn't keep his head up and well, he collapsed, and uh, they didn't get him medical help. They sort of treated it as a, you're lazy, you're not trying hard, don't get him help, you know, that kind of thing. You know, he's let him get up on his own. And um, so they didn't get medical help. He ultimately ended up in hospital and then died two weeks later of heat exhaustion. Mm. I mean, so his body and brain... You know, the brain and the body are self-destructing. It's visible. All the kids can see it. The trainers can see it. The coaches can see it. But they treat it like a moral flaw, even though they have the evidence before them that this is a stricken brain and body. And, you know, he didn't listen to what George Mumford calls the quiet voice within, the voice of knowing. He, he dissociated, as you and I were talking about. He identified with the aggressor. He let the aggressors tell him who he was and what he was and even how he was feeling. And it's tragic. That is so tragic. Oh, that makes me so sad yeah. to hear about that. And I'm sure that's not the only time it's happened. I'm sure it has happened before. Whew. Um, Jennifer, you talk about um, the quest abuse um, in your book. Uh, um, I think it was some a big case that you use an example 
Am I right? Is, is there? Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, the um, the Quest program was, and it's just yet another example of rampant child abuse that continues on in our society, despite the fact that our our youth populations are demonstrating indicators of mental illness at rates we've never seen before. We still don't make any changes. So the Quest program was in the 1970s and 80s at a public school in Vancouver, British Columbia. And there were three teachers ultimately in the program. So um, I was a participant in the program. I was a student. And it was a fabulous outdoor education program. So we got to do really intensive academics in the fall. And then in the spring, that term at school, in high school, so imagine you're 15, 16 years old, we went cross-country skiing and we went canoeing and off out in the wilderness for, you know, 10 days at a time. So bicycling in the Gulf Islands. Like, it was just wonderful. And it was very based on environmental pre- preservation and wilderness travel and pushing yourself. And it was really just a glorious experience. The only problem was the three teachers were um, emotionally, physically, and sexually abusing us the whole time. And this went on for 10 years and um, ultimately got um, sort, of, it sort of petered out, rumors, that kind of thing. But then the women who had been abused took them to court um, in the early 2000s, and one teacher was um, convicted and charged, and the other two have not been even though, um, wow. you know, there's, I, I believe there's 50 victim statements now about them with the police. So, yeah, I was, I, I mean, it's been a long journey for me, but because, and the reason why you and I can have this conversation is I dissociated. So the girl that was abused was not me. I, I put her in a box and I kind of kept her hidden. But the truth of it was, you know, I created this dual personality. One personality was really successful. You know, I was passing my PhD exams with distinction. I got my dissertation was published by a U.S. university. I just was so high achieving. But nobody saw me when I came home. And when I came home, I had an eating disorder. And when I came home, I was doing self-harm, you know, cutting. Um, And I hope this isn't triggering for your listeners, but, you know, I spent a long time trying to work through this with a psychologist first, you know, talk therapy, and it was very focused on my family. I never mentioned the teachers and what they had done to me because that wasn't me. It happened to someone else, another girl. (laughs) I mean, it sounds crazy when I talk about it now, but that's dissociation, and that's the brain keeping you alive. My brain knew I could not process that abuse or I might self-destruct. So it it very lovingly and protectively kept it in a box until in middle age, the age I am now, I started to integrate the material. And I think it's why I'm so passionate about keeping kids safer. I really think we could do a lot better. But, you know, you're reading USA Gymnastics. It takes a village (laughs) to abuse a child. And... Everybody in those, like from the FBI to University of Michigan to the Olympics, they all failed those girls. They didn't protect them. And that's, you know, a generation later than me. How could this happen in the 70s and 80s and still be happening now? Really? I'm so sorry that happened to you. How did you move, how did you stop dissociating? 
I mean, was it through a therapist or someone that helped you to experience reality and to learn that it was safe to do so, or how did you go? How did you experience that? You know, I really think that the best learning that I did in that regard, and and I mean, I love the psychologists I worked with. I love the oh, sorry, that's my dog. I love mm-hmm. the. Um, I actually worked with two psychiatrists that were wonderful, really amazing at University of Toronto. I just love them. Um, And I learned a great deal, and I learned a lot more confidence and ways to cope. But it was the neuroscience research that helped me finally see the issue as a brain issue. And once I started seeing it as a brain issue, as a medical issue, as something wrong that was dysfunctional that could be healed – and I could start to do the type of work that would bring about healing, that changed everything for me. And that's what the book is about, as you know. Yes. So we're talking about neurogenesis and um, the, the science or new theory. I guess it's probably about 10 years old that, um, that the brain it has plasticity, that we can change the wiring of the brain. So, Let's move into that. We've talked a lot about the bullying. Let's talk about the re- how we rewire the brain or what is going on in the brain. Yeah, well, so if you imagine, so someone like me, I'm dissociating. So what I've done is I've created a set of neural networks, and we can think about them as pathways. They're like roads in your brain. So the neural networks that I have very well established in my brain since I was a teenager and I was abused, um, see the world, operate in the world, conduct myself in, in two different ways. One self is high performing because that's how I won't get touched. No one's going to hurt me. I'm going to be able to show the world that I'm successful and I, I'm safe. And then the private self who's harmful and, and taking it out on me because there must be something wrong with me. I'm driven to do these shameful behaviors, why am I doing that, you know, and I'm very tormented. So then imagine I wake up one morning and I say to myself, I have neuroplasticity. That means I can work really hard to change that sort of broken um, set of networks in my brain. I can take those roads and those pathways and I can blend them together. I can blend the vulnerable self, the private self, the hurt self, I can, I can take that person, that aspect, and I think of that in many ways as the brain and body, and I can work with my mind to bring them back into the fold because I don't identify with the aggressor anymore. I don't think that, that they have the power at all. I've taken the power completely away from them. I've, I've, anyone who's dissociated in my life now, it's those men that abused me. They were in the sacred role of teachers, and they abused me and many, many students. And I have a very clear line that tells me now that I have nothing to do with them, that they behaved in ways that is really harmful. They must be very mentally ill, and I hope they get the help they need, but they have nothing to do with me. Now, on the flip side, I've taken my neuroplasticity, my ability to change my brain by what I do, how I feel, what I think, and I consciously, day in, day out, mindfully, used my mind, brain, body to work together to bring about healing. And there is so much research, as you know, that backs up one of the best things you can do if you've been bullied or abused is get active. The action, the activity, 
the proactive behaviors, the get, getting moving, all communicates to your brain that you're actually in charge. You're in charge and you're safe. And when you tell your brain very consciously, you can do this with mindfulness as well, you do the very deep breathing, the very calm thinking and feeling, the very purposeful clearing of the mind with kindness and non-judgment. When you do that with your mind, you're telling your brain and your body that you're safe. So you're not pumping yourself full of cortisol and adrenaline and negative thoughts and fears and anxieties. You are purposely saying to the mind, hey, mind, you need to talk to the brain. You've got to tell the brain and the body that they're safe and that they can relax and they can feel all kinds of wonderful sensations of calmness and clarity and problem solving and creativity, all the things that come to you when you use your mind to calm yourself down. They're the same kinds of things that happen when you use your mind and your body to exercise and become active. That active movement tells your brain that you're in charge. And so you change your neural networks. If you could look inside my brain now, you would not see the same brain that was the girl who was abused brain. That brain looked very, very different. And you can see it on a brain scan. Oh, um, I'm trained, actually I'm certified in a process called neurobilateral processing. Um, I'm actually probably the first person in the United States, other than the doctor who trademarked it, uh, to be able to, to practice it. And it's, it's really fascinating because what we do is we take, we integrate the right and the left brain very quickly. And through a process of yogic breathing, tapping, mm-hmm. um, um, visualization, EMDR, this happens within in an hour. We take a memory and we take the emotional charge completely out of it. And it's a fascinating process, and I'm so excited to have learned it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a way to integrate all of those, those parts of the brain, you know, the, where, it's, where it is um, stuck in the right brain. And the left brain, the logical brain, cannot access it because it's logical. It can't get there, so we integrate it. Um, so, yeah, I'm think, I was thinking about that as you, as you were talking. It is an amazing process, and it's so simple. The, the great thing about it is that the doctor who created it is a trauma therapist, and she realized that all the trauma therapies that are out there cause the person to live in the trauma while they're trying to heal it. And she didn't mm-hmm. want that to happen. So we don't do that. They, they visualize that trauma for a very, very, very short period of time. And then we erase the emotion. It's, it's incredible. So just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> that, no, that is incredible. And I think that's the way of the future. You know, you're very cutting edge with that now, but I think that's the way of the future is that if the second people understand that, you know, trauma is something that they're holding on to in their brain because that's how the brain keeps you safe. If you burn your hand on the stove, your brain says, let's never, ever forget that. So you never put your hand on the stove again. Well, it does it with traumatic things as well. It clings to them 
so that you recognize it the next time it comes down the road and protect yourself. But that's not healthy for brain, body, and mind to be holding on to all this trauma. Just like you say, you've got to let it go. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've helped people. um, This process has helped people tremendously and really quickly. As a matter of fact, this is just a small aspect of it, but my daughter has, has a phobia about snakes. And she's so phobic about it, she can't hear the word. She can't see a picture of it. She, can't even, she, she won't even travel to a place where they have them. And she was just visiting with me, and I did bilateral processing on her. And she texted me yesterday, and she said, Mom, I think it worked. She goes, I'm not having oh. that reaction anymore. And I only treated her one time. Normally it takes probably four treatments, four to six treatments, depending on the severity of it. But this was only one time. So I was, um, I was really tickled that it helped her. So, Oh, that's um, just amazing. Think of how that could help so many people overcome barriers that they have because they have this uh, unmetabolized trauma. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. As you know from the book, one of the things that I found really exciting and interesting that I hadn't known about before is, is the, I mean, he's referred to as the father of neuroplasticity, is Dr. Michael Merzenich's work. And that is all, it's a similar approach to what you're describing, whereby you can go and do the brain training. So it's like you go to the gym and you work out, but you go to the brain training online at Brain HQ, and you work out with your brain. And that is a way to um, rewrite neural networks by strengthening them, and that just doesn't leave room for all the trauma and negative, destructive things because the brain has limited cortical real estate. And so the more you work on strengthening your brain, the less you have space for weaker, more troubled, more traumatized parts. Mm-hmm. It does. It empowers you. It takes away. The people that I've worked with, have most of them have had chronic stress and anxiety. Um, And after about four to six treatments, that goes away. The nightmares go away. They can sleep better. Um, They're functioning better. So, and it's such a simple process that you wouldn't, you think it's magical because it's so easy. But um, this is great. This is a great, great conversation. So, what other um, aspects of of your book did you want to share with us, The Bully Brain? Where we, uh, there's so many places we could go with this, but I'm going to let you choose <laughs> where we're going to go with it now. Well, I think, you know, Randy, it's it's what you just said that I think is the most important point, and it's that we ignore our brains because we can't see them. So we have a tendency to put all our focus and energy on things that we can see. So when we talk about healing, when we talk about health, when we talk about well-being and happiness, we focus on our bodies and we forget that the brain is the absolute control center of our feelings and our thoughts and our behaviors. So I think that, you know, the magic, as you've just been describing, is in people like yourself, bringing that healing power to people and empowering them to do the work, to have the kind of healthy brain that they want, the healing that has to take place, has to take place inside their skull. And the most beautiful part of it is, just as you said, it's like this miracle because our brains are very adept at healing. No matter what's being done to you, you have 
neurons within your brain that can set about the repair work as long as you're doing the evidence-based practices like the type of work you're doing or physical aerobic exercise, mindfulness, uh, the brain training at Brain HQ. All of these things heal, repair, and bring people to work with their brains, not against them. You're right. And you talked about cognitive dissonance um, in the beginning. That, is, that makes it very difficult to begin the process because you're, what you're trying to do is change the way, change a pattern of thinking that's so um, dug in. It's so, it's so entrenched. Yeah. And so in the beginning, yeah. you know, like what I find when I work with people through, um, for narcissistic abuse, I always have a great first session and I tell them, okay, over the course of this week, you're going to start thinking Randy doesn't know what she's talking about and you're going to go back to your complete way of thinking because of cognitive dissonance. You're not going to be able to hold on to what we, sh- what we worked on. I said, but you, if you come back every week, then we get two steps ahead and you go one step back until finally you can hold it and the cognitive dissonance goes away. Um, but that's mm-hmm. very uncomfortable for people to have these conflicting thoughts. It's much easier to, to think about um, the negative, the pain that they're in, the issues that they're having, you know, the victimization. It's much easier, easier to think like that than it is to say, nope, going to push that away and put in something else. What, one of the things that I find really helpful in that regard is um, activation energy, which is the term they use in positive psychology. And they, they will talk about the fact that, and, and it goes back to roads and pathways. So if you look at your brain, and just as you said, the pathways that are entrenched in your brain that are really clear, they're actually kind of default patterns. They are the roads you like to take, and they are superhighways in your brain, which means that they're myelinated. That just means that they have, you've built up over time by repeated thinking and feeling and behaviors, say in a narcissistic relationship, you've myelinated those neural networks. That means that you've practiced that victimizing feeling so many times that your brain actually thinks it's natural and normal. So if you're a child at home and your parents discipline you by hitting you, you think that's natural and normal because it's a repeated practice that occurs. It would be news to you to discover that many children don't have that kind of punishment in their household. So that you can understand neuroplasticity from the sense that we create our own brains and our own brain architecture through what we do what we experience, how we're raised, etc. The beautiful thing is we can change it. So someone comes into you, and they don't. They, the work is so hard, and you have to be the activation energy for them. You have to say, you know what? This is going to be hard. You're going to want to fall back to your default neural networks, all those superhighways in your brain that tell you that this is how things are. This is what love is like. This is what these kinds of relationships will always be in your life, which isn't true. So you act as the activator, and you keep saying, uh-uh, you can put down new neural networks. You can take the myelination away from the narcissistic ones and replace them with honest, empathic, caring, healthy relationships with someone else. And over time, and it, the, the hard thing is it takes time and effort. Over time and effort, 
those original pathways that were superhighways, they become overgrown. They become roads that you don't go down anymore. In fact, you'd have to use a machete to break through all the jungle. <laughs> They're so overgrown and hard to use. <laughs> On the flip side, you've got these new gleaming superhighways for healthy relationships. But it, you know, I think that's the key point about a coach or um, a mental health professional or a, you know, whatever form it takes personal trainer, you need someone to help you at the beginning and be your activation energy, or you just fall back on the old pathways. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, you know, you, you're explaining things that I'm doing that I'm not even understanding why I'm doing them. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It really, it, it does. It, it's, it really validates the work that I'm doing. Thank you. You also talk in your book about, we don't have a whole lot more time, but you also talk in your book about how um, we can get physical disease from not processing, um, you know, these traumas. Well, it's, it's one of the most important medical research done sort of in the last sort of 20 years. At the end of the 1990s, um, they did a huge research study um, at Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Vincent Felitti and Dr. Robert Anda. And it's, I'm, some of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of it. It's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And what they wanted to figure out was, do um, abuses that occur up to, you know, in childhood, so up to the age of 18, does that abuse manifest in later life as chronic illness? And they, they worked with something like very, very close to 20,000 patients, and they were able to establish that there is a direct correlation between abuse in childhood and, um, and when I say childhood, I mean up to age 18, so abuse throughout your childhood and um, chronic health and shortened lifespan. So in other words, one of the most important things all of us need to do is say, if we've suffered abuses in our home, in our school, on the sports, in arts, uh, at Boy Scouts, whatever, we absolutely have to address it and we have to set in motion healing for our brain and our body because it is correlated with um, chronic health of all kinds. It's, it's because, it's, as you were talking about before, chronic stress or toxic stress, which comes from abuse in all forms, so social relation, um, emotional, uh, verbal, psychological, neglect, emotional neglect, physical and sexual, all those forms of abuse at the hands of adults to children in whatever context cause so much toxicity in the brain and body that it's like a time bomb and cut to middle age and the person has diabetes, they have arthritis, they have a chronic heart problem, they have cancer. It's all documented in the research and yet we don't change and better protect and better educate our kids and our parents and teachers and coaches to ensure this never happens we could become a society and this is as you know this is a big thrust of my book is we don't just need to make individual change we have to work together as a society to to change from being a high stress toxic stress society grounded in bullying and abuse we need to walk away from that framework it's outdated there's no research that says it does anything for us but cause suffering terrible suffering you're right so how do we get people who are you know who who love being in control 
so basically, is it not to stop the people who are in control, but to stop the way we react to it or, um, or the way, you know, yeah, our response to it? Is that kind of how you're thinking it could change? I, th- I think it's got to start at a grassroots level with individuals. I think the more individuals get empowered by the research um, and the knowledge, and then they can start to advocate for a different way, that kind of a groundswell from the bottom up is going to be what makes a change. It's just we need more people like you, people who advocate for kids and say, you do not disrespect my child. I don't care if you're the teacher. I don't care if you're the authority. You do not disrespect my child ever, let alone abuse. And then, and then learning about how we can work with our brains, not against them. Um, making brain health a priority. I mean, why are our children having their teeth checked once a year or twice a year? Why do they get their eyes checked and their ears checked? And they never have their brain assessed. Their brain is never checked for health. When we know that, doing the neuroplastic interventions that Dr. Merzenich does um, and is the most highly awarded, one of the most highly awarded neuroscientists alive today, the interventions that he does can save children from going down the path to mental illness in their adolescent years when they're very, very vulnerable. Nobody's doing it. It's amazing to me. It's like having the cure for cancer and not applying it widespread across society. That's the big shift we need to make. But it's so how many – so there really needs to be sort of a pediatric neuro – uh, neuroscience doctor or neuro neurologist, pediatric neurologist that can do brain scans on children and make it part of a routine exam is what you're saying, right? Absolutely. This, this is research that um, Dr. Merzenich wants to try and roll out, which would be um, in grade six. So it would be a longitudinal study and it would show the entire world. You start in grade six you do an EEG of the child's brain. You do an assessment, as they've, dis- they've designed an assessment through um, an Australia, Australian not-for-profit that Dr. Merzenich works with called um, Stronger Brains with Wendy Hay. They've designed this whole intervention. You start in grade six, and you get the kids doing the brain training, which can really do remarkable things to keep the, their brains healthy. And it's what all of us should be doing. If you don't want to get dementia, you want to be doing brain training every day, like you go to the gym every day to keep your heart healthy. Yeah, I know. I work, I, I work every day. I'm 63, and I work every day um, writing, thinking, researching, reading, you know, um, every day because I'm trying to keep my brain active. You know, that's what I'm oh. – <laughs> Yeah, we do. We have we <laughs> have to good. work on our brains. We have to work on our brains, but hope, hopefully it's working. I don't know. <laughs> hopefully, so um, you oh, would find his have... research extremely interesting. What is his name? Doctor Michael Merzenich. It's M E R Z. Merzenich. I E N I C H. E-N-I-C-H. Bad okay. speller. Okay. I can see the word. <laughs> Mike, that's okay. I'll look it up. Mike, that's for Mike. And it's in your book, so I'll find it. Um, okay. Yeah. So, well, everyone out there, you need to pick up a copy of this, The Bullied Brain, because if you're listening, chances are when you listen to me, you've probably suffered some kind of trauma in your life and you're looking for some kind of healing. And... Um, 
there are many avenues to healing, but this is a core understanding of what has gone on. And it's probably, Jennifer, you know, I tell people, if you don't want to heal for you, at least heal for your children, because you will pass it on. You will. You can't help but not pass it on if you don't heal it. It's so important. So, um, but The Bully Brain by Jennifer Fraser, Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R. Pick up a copy of this. It's life-changing. So, Jennifer, are you still there? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't say goodbye. I didn't say goodbye to you yet, but um, it's been really great. We knew we knew before we even started we were going to have a great conversation, and we did. So absolutely, um, I wanna, absolutely. I want to thank you for uh, writing this book, The Bullied Brain, and um, for opening up this topic. That is, I agree with you. It is crucial that we make these changes absolutely crucial so let's try to get that information out there okay and thank you so much for being my guest today i really really appreciate it oh i i really enjoyed the conversation i learned a lot too so i i appreciate so much the work you're doing (laughs) yes we it's mutual we'll have a wonderful day maybe we'll connect again okay thank you so much randy bye okay take care jennifer bye So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.